Somebody tell me about where we've been in the story of Matthew, what he's telling us about at this point. We're in Holy Week. We are in Holy Week, right? We've seen him come in on what we know as Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry where he rides his little donkey. Everybody's hooping and hollering and praising Hosanna and Son of David. Okay, so that happened on a Sunday, and then he comes into Jerusalem and he does what? He upsets the tables of everything, yes. figuratively and literally. Yes, yeah, he's causing trouble, right? And he knew he would. We know he does. We've heard the story before. Um, Jesus is in town uh, to essentially take on the religious authorities, and that's what we're in the middle of, right? What, so he went in and he tossed the economic system, the money changers, and the, the process for uh, exchanging money for animals that will be used for sacrifice. That happens inside the temple walls. Um, the action that we're reading about uh, largely takes place inside those temple walls. We looked at uh, some images two weeks ago, I think, about, or maybe it was last week, I can't remember at this point, uh, but what the temple looks like. It's a very large structure that has a colonnade around the, end, the outside, the perimeter, um, and much of what was going on, local rabbis and teachers would kind of gather in that area and they would teach, right? They basically have Sunday school or a teaching time, um, and you would walk in and you would find one that you wanted to listen to and interact with them for however long and then perhaps move on to the next one. And there's just this public space where uh, teachers of, um, of the faith would gather and talk. And so Jesus is coming to that space. Uh, he tossed the money changers on the first day, and now he's back. In, in the in-between, we looked at this moment where he uh, curses a fig tree, and we talked about all the imagery and the prophetic act that that was. It wasn't Jesus just being upset and hungry in the morning um, and lashing out. What was that? He wasn't hangry. Hangry. It wasn't hangry Jesus just being upset. It was a prophetic act in which he, told, he was telling his disciples that they would speak on the, on the heels of the resurrection, uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection, the judgment that comes with not accepting Jesus, but also prepare or and provide the way to God, right? So out of that judgment. And then he goes in last week, uh, two weeks ago. Well, yeah, last week. No, I'm sorry. And uh, the religious leaders gather around him again in the temple court. He's on their turf, and they're not so happy about what has happened that prior day, and they have questions for him, right? And so today we are still in that confrontation, and we'll talk about that. Um, but let's go ahead and read it. We are on the 21st chapter, uh, tw- verses 28 through 32. My clicker will work. There we go. 28 through 32. It says, what do you think? And this is Jesus speaking. A man had two sons. He went to the first son and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first, Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. Okay, pretty relatively straightforward today. Uh, We don't need to talk about too much in terms of the Old Testament and background. It's pretty much a, a parable, an example that Jesus lays out to the religious authorities in front of everybody uh, and poses the question. Remember, what, what is this process of uh, the, the fancy word, the Jewish word is midrash, but it's this uh, back and forth. So how does, that, how does that work in this culture? What's, ha- what's actually happening here? Are you talking about the uh, honor-shame culture? Well, some of the honor-shame culture, yeah, that's definitely going on. Tell us about that. Uh, all I know is it, it's just kind of like it, it was a public 
like if you have an argument in public if you don't if you don't win the argument or have the upper hand you're basically shamed in front of everybody yeah kind of like the your mama jokes of it, you know? <laughs> yeah yeah right my kids have started telling those and they don't realize that when they say your mama they're talking about each other's mama it's, it's not a, it's not a knock it's your your mom too so there, there was this period, especially in the 80s and 90s, when you would tell a, a, it's a yo mama joke where you would basically insult someone else's mother, and it was supposed to be, a, a, but, and my kids have thought that's funny, but they don't realize that they're talking about the same mother, and so <laughs> that's lost on them. What was that? Xavier said one yesterday. Yeah. I was like, You're, that's me. <laughs> You're talking about me. Right. <laughs> um, so, but it was very much this culture in which public interactions happened often. Uh, the public, the market, if you think about uh, Paul and his trip to Athens, he goes in and there, these, there, there's a marketplace and there were, in that case, there were literally stands that you would climb up onto and you would give a speech or a teaching and you would be elevated above everybody so they could hear you and people would gather around and they would figure out whether or not they want to spend time listening to you. It's much like what's going on in the colonnade here at the temple, right? And they would, you know, you'd banter back and forth, people would ask questions, and it would, it would be in the, in the public. And, and if people disagreed with you, they would come up, and very, right there in the public eye, they would argue with you. And it was a battle of wits or intellect, and whoever walked away with the upper hand had gained honor in the public eye, and whoever lost the argument had lost honor, right? And that same dynamic is happening in Jerusalem in the first century, right? Which is why, yes... I'm just going to say, you know, we don't see that today in our culture because of mass media. Uh, but when Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated in California, I just happened to be on the campus at Berkeley in California. And Sprawl Hall is a huge place where all the anti-Vietnam protests were taking place and such like that. And I was there. And, and they did exactly that. Students, faculty, townspeople came in and discussed, argued, but discussed the implications of this assassination. And it was one of the most educational things I'd ever seen. It wasn't just the honor-shame thing. People were really interacting. And boy, I, I was taught. I learned things. Uh, and the same thing happened in 1970 at the riots in Ohio, at OSU in particular. The president of the university said, we're having a moratorium day. And all the students, about 30,000 of us, were there on campus discussing what were the problems and how and what are solutions. And so in some ways, what Jesus is engaged in is one of the best, most exciting ways of learning I've ever seen and experienced. Yeah, it was, I mean, there was a reason why they did it, right? And so... Uh, we've mentioned before, if you went to a rabbi, often you would be posed a question, not given an answer. And you, we talked about like the Tibetan monks, and the, you see this in uh, movies and TV where people take pilgrimage to see these wise sages, and they go with questions, and the sage responds with a question for them to go home and ponder. It was, it was this sort of dynamic where you don't often get answers, right? And the, last week, that's what happened, right? They, they come to Jesus posing a question uh, in order to sort of trap him, and being the cunning rabbi that he is, he responds with a question, which would be expected. That's part of this dynamic, right? And we've talked about how those questioning opens up more and uh, broader topics and, and sort of widens the field of discussion in some ways. 
Um, but he knew his question was going to be, they thought they got him, and he knew that his question was going to get them. He had a, an even more dangerous question for them. And, and remember in their response, they said, well, if we say, you know, the question, remind us what the question was. Uh, it says, I'll ask you one question, and if you answer me, I will tell you what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? Right, so they ask him essentially, like, what authority did John, they come asking Jesus what authority he has to toss the temple and do these things and allow uh, people to declare him Messiah. And his response is, well, what authority did John have? And they know that they're, they're God, right? Because if they say it's from God, which is what a lot of people thought, and that would make them happy, well, then they have going, they're going back on what they've said and what they had to say about John, right? And so they're, they're shown to be wrong in their judgments about John previously. If they say uh, he had no divine authority at all, they're going to upset the crowds, and the crowds are going to be upset with them and riot, and they lose credibility in the eyes. Either way, they're going to lose credibility. Either they made the wrong judgment to begin with, or, in the, or they... Uh, or denying whatever else one else thought, and so people are going to think, ah, oh, well, we're not going to listen to them anymore, right? They've upset us, right? And so they realize that, and so they don't answer, right? And that's when, when Jesus says, okay, well, if you're not going to answer me, I'm not going to answer you, right? And we talked last week about how he doesn't give an answer, but it's clear what his answer is, right? Because he has, he has linked, and Matthew has linked time and time again, John with Jesus, right? And so he, he would say, certainly, that John, his authority was from God, and, and therefore, likewise, he comes with the authority of God, right? And we know that, of course, as Christians, because he is God, right? Uh, authority is his. It's not that he has to be granted authority, it's, it's simply his. So the, what's going to happen now is we're going to see in the next couple weeks, today and two more weeks, a series of three parables that Jesus is telling, right? And as we talk through this today, this parable is a response to what has just happened, right? It's not a parable that we lift out of its context and try to apply all over the board, right? This is, this is Jesus having something to say to whom? The Pharisees, right? So that little debate, it's not that that debate happened last week and Jesus like drops the mic and then he goes home, right? He's still right there and he continues to press the issue with them, all right? And he says, okay, so what, so what do you think, right? And he, he poses this question. So let's, somebody summarize for us what this question is. It's not too complicated, but he has two, two options here. But what's the scenario here? Yeah, so there's once the father has a task and the, one of the sons is honest, says, well, I'm not going to go do that, but then changes his mind and goes and does it. Then the second one, second son says, um, I will do it, and then doesn't do it. Right. And basically, um, which one, you know, he asked which of the sons was, uh, I don't know, 40 Did the will of the father, right? Did the will of the father, so. Yeah. All right, so we're posed here with a father uh, who has a farm, probably a vineyard, um, lots of small vineyards, the, and just given the dynamic, again, it doesn't spell this out, but we're making some assumptions based on what was going on in the culture. Probably a small family farm. Uh, the Greek word here for what, what's translated here as son is techna, and it means child. It could be sons, it could be daughters, right? Uh, the, the possibility is open for either. Um, they are not adult children. That term refers to uh, sort of pre, preteen age, okay? So probably not little child, because a little child's not going to go out and be able to work in the field, but they are not full-grown, you know, we're talking about like 16, 17, 18-year-olds, right? By that time, you're an adult in this culture, and you would not have this term applied to you, right? So we're talking about young, young men or young women, you know, this translation decides their sons, 
It's likely, uh, but not necessarily the case. Dad comes to them and says, today, I need you to do some work for me, right? That today carries the implication that this is not an everyday thing, right? So these, these kids, young, young, uh, young boys, uh, are probably used to having playtime and leisure, right? And so this is something that there is probably a little out of the ordinary, which is why the first one probably says, uh-uh, I'm not doing that, like I'm not used to it, and, like that's not something I'm supposed to do, that's not my job, right? Um, and so dad comes and says, hey, I need you to do this. Uh, it, probably they're not, they're separate, otherwise the question would not be repeated. Um, so they may be, in, again, we're making some assumptions here. But however it happens, he approaches the, the first question and says, child, son, I, I need some help today. I need you to go out into the field and, and, or into the vineyard and work for me, right? And Buddy's not having it, right? Uh-uh, I'm not doing that, right? <laughs> How many of you had a kid ever t- look at you and say, no, I don't want to do, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to, right? But that son goes off, and then he kind of has a change of heart. He rethinks and thinks, I, we don't know exactly what goes through his head, but hey, I probably should have said yes. Dad needs some help. I probably should do this. Maybe he feels some guilt. Again, we're reading into the story. That's not provided. But something happens where he decides after a period of time, uh, yeah, maybe I should go do that. And he ends up and go, he walks out and spends the day, right? Then he goes to the second son and says, hey, buddy, I, I, need, you to, I need you to help me today. And this guy says, yeah. And the translation is a little stilted. I go. <laughs> guy goes, sir, right? Not only does he say I'm going, but he says it with respect, right? This, this was the, the same word that gets translated for God as Lord, right? It's a, it's a recognition that dad has authority over me, and I will do the thing that dad has told me to do. Right? It's a recognition of respect, or a, a statement of respect. Right? So he's like, yeah, Dad, I'll do that. And he walks out, and then he, cha- he changes his mind and says, nah, I'm not going to do that. Right? If you're in my house, you have kids who we say, okay, we're going to clean up now. And they, so they grab one little laundry, and they take it up to the laundry room, and then you don't see them for an hour. Right? They pretend they're going to help, and then they sneak off, and they don't help. And then you're stuck. <laughs> yes. And we had that... They get distracted, or you know, and maybe he gets distracted. He never goes. Whatever the case is, he never goes. He never follows through on his commitment to his father to do this thing, right? So we've got these two different scenarios. What do you think about the first one? What do you know about this culture and the? It's a commandment. What's one of the commandments? Honor your father and your mother, right? What does that mean in in that day and age? Pretty much do what they tell you. Yeah, yeah, in a lot of ways, do what they tell you, right? And certainly in this case, here's your father. He's provided a home for you. It's not like he's asking you to do something that's immoral or out of bounds, right? He's got uh, a vineyard, and it's one of the ways probably that um, the family is supporting itself, and you are being asked, the child is being asked to help with that, right? It would be the expectation that this son would stand up and say, yeah, Dad, I'll, I'll head out there, and he would put in his half an hour, hour, his kid, you know, right? He's not going to work all day, probably. But dad needs some help, right? So what would happen in, a situ- in a, an environment like that where son or daughter or anyone looks at dad and says, nah, not going to do it? <laughs> Aaron says backhand, <laughs> right? You would suffer the consequences. That was not tolerated. In fact, what's the Old Testament uh, consequence or punishment for dishonoring your father or your mother? Death. Right now, did they, were they carrying that out on a daily basis with their kids who talked back to them? Of course not, right? But once you were older, if you were dishonoring your your elders, there would be stiff consequences, right? 
Um, this is a difficult age, as you said, because young ch older children, young adults, are testing naturally where that authority starts and ends in their relationship with their parents. So there is a uneasiness that is developmental as well as uh, no, but I'm not sure that's the implication of the story. It, it might be. I mean, you want to say something? It didn't say, it doesn't say like that he threw, like he was, he was angry or threw a fit or anything. He just said, I will, I will not. Yeah. Like, uh -huh. like, I got something else to do or something. So maybe, I don't know, but I just, it leaves room for him to later honor the will. So yeah, he just says, I'm not going to do that. And it's left to our imagination exactly. The way he says that, right? It doesn't, you know, we can't read inflection. I mean, so, but I don't care how he says it. I mean, I'll tell you what, when, when my kid looks at me deadpan in the face after I told him to do something, they say no. I can feel the blood pressure rising, right? <laughs> Let's just be honest, right? Even if they're kind about it, if it no. <laughs> um, and you can bet in this day and age when that was then, right? You didn't exert your authority against your father, right? That was, that was a no-no, right? To, to transgress their desire for you, right? I mean, this isn't, this isn't a, again, a father who's requesting something that was unreasonable or outside the bounds. It's not a, you know, a, he's not asking him to go do something immoral. It was, I need help, right? I need you to go today, right? You have every other day. I mean, how many times have we had conversations like this as parents? You have every other day to play. Today, I need some help, right? Today, I need you to help me, right? And he looks at his father and he says, nope, and it would be expected that that dad would step in at that point, right? Most dads, parents in this day and age who were disrespected by their kids, that child would suffer some consequences, right? And I'm not exactly sure what it would be in this scenario, but he would not get away with that, right? But what happens here? Is there a consequence? Not that we read, right? He's just allowed to rebel, right? <clears throat> we'll come back to that in a minute. Then we come to the second child, right, who his response is, yeah, Dad, awesome, I'll help you, right? Because what? what? I mean, he, he knows he can't say no. Like, he shouldn't say no. He's smart enough to know that he's not as dense as the first son. And in fact, the way the Greek works, this I go is set up in order to contrast, like, he may be aware that the other son has said no, and he's like, I'm not that stupid. I'll, I mean, I'm, I'll go, right? He might not, but I'm going to. And there's some, if you know the story of the prodigal son, there's some overlap here between the son who comes to dad and says, I want my stuff and uh, my inheritance, and he, he goes out, right, and parties and, and wastes it away, and the other son who follows dad's instructions and is perhaps a little... Uh, I mean, what's, how would you characterize that second son's behavior or attitude? A little self-righteous, right? And so there's a little bit of self-righteousness buried in this response, right? I, I'm better than my brother. I'll, I'll go do it, right? With a little bit of, like, I'm, you know, he's, don't worry, Dad, I got this, right? I'll help you, right? right? I'm, the, I'm the good son. As my brother would say, he's the favorite, right? We all know better. Mom loves you best. <laughs> yeah, he always reminds us as we get together, family, well, I'm the favorite. So. <laughs> uh, 
But then, of course, he goes out and he's like, nah, never mind, right? And as we said, he, he, perhaps he gets sidetracked, perhaps he gets distracted, perhaps he just knows he can't get away with saying no, but he's just always so going to tell his dad what he wants to hear, and he walks out and he does whatever he wants to. Maybe he goes out and feels and plays with his trucks, you know? They, of course, didn't have trucks, but, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be, right? Again, this happens all the time at our house, Right? You tell them, we need you to do this. And all of a sudden, I can't find them. And I walk outside, and they're there on the trampoline yesterday playing a game. I was like, kids, I told you not to be out here. We have work to do. Right? You told me you were going to help me, and then you disappeared, and you go play games. Like, that, that happens. <laughs> but, Dad, that's not fair. That's what I got. This is so unfair. And she just marches back in the road. Ro- you know. <laughs> that's a big problem with Kira. I tell her to go do the dishes, and she disappears to the back of the 15. Yeah. So, like, we know this story, right? It's only an attack, but you have to get it back. Right, right. And, and you don't have to be a parent to understand that. We've all been that kid. <laughs> Let's be honest. We were that kid growing up. Sometimes we said yes, and then we didn't do what we were told. Sometimes we had smart mouth, right? And sometimes that smart mouth got smacked, right? Hey, this sounds like it worked. No, that. I think I can remember once when that happened, and I deserved it <laughs> very much. Um, so we have, the, have this dynamic, right? So let's go back. What, what is, wh- who are we talking about? Who's the metaphor for? Right? Pharisees. The, the Pharisees, the religious leadership. Yeah, right? God gave them a text. Who's the father? Uh, God. God, right? Who's the child who says no? The rebellious child. It'd be the, like the tax collectors. Perhaps the tax collectors, the rebellious ones who say no at first, but then go on to do what? Uh, actually end up doing what they're supposed to do. Actually end up doing what they're supposed to do, right? Who is the second group? Pharisees. Maybe. Right. And uh, whoever else, I don't know. All the Jews, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, well, right, so any particularly religious authority who have said, yes, I will do this to God, you, you know, said, yes, I'm going to do what you've called me to do, but then they go on not, not to do it, right, to willfully ignore them. Well, kind of everybody in the temple at that moment, because they're not doing, he's like, Perhaps. you're it out, you know, you're not doing what you say. Yeah, so maybe it's everyone in the temple, right? Probably not everybody, there's disciples around, there are people that are really interested in Jesus, you know, but there may very, very well maybe lots of people, right? What, what does Jesus say in, as he concludes, right? He says, uh, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. Okay, stop there. Where are we? In the temple, in front of who? Teachers of the law, lots of people, right? We've talked about what did you, what, what did you bring up first? What kind of social dynamic is going on here? Honor, shame, right? And so Jesus, they rightly identify the first son who was disrespectful but then changes his mind as the one who is, going to do, is doing the will of the Father. He ended up doing what, what the Father wanted, right? And so in response to their identification of the correct one, we assume it's correct that Jesus would agree. It doesn't actually say you're right. But he says, who is going to go into the kingdom ahead of them? Tax collectors and the prostitutes. And the what are those groups? What was that? The lowest. The lowest of the low. These are the ones who have absolutely rejected the authority of God, right? They have walked away. 
They are, I mean, they're so low that if you come in contact with them, you have to go, go through a cleansing ritual in order to regain society, right? These are the, the dirty ones, the nasty ones, the, the untouchables. And, and the tax collectors being, they're thieves. They're thieves. Remember, we've talked in the past about how they, tax collectors were Jewish people who were consorting with the Roman Empire to extort money from the Jewish people and oftentimes they made themselves wealthy by coming to you and saying uh, they knew that your tax bill was 100 bucks, so they collected 200 bucks and they put the other 100 in their pocket and sent 100 to Rome, right? So they're stealing from their own people. They're traitors, right? right? These are the people that the sickery, the dagger men, the zealots would walk through the marketplace to talk before, and gang style, they would literally pull out daggers, shove them up under their ribs to puncture their heart and their lungs and leave them for dead in the, the marketplace. Like they were hated, right? The, they were the lowest of the low. And Matthew was one, and he wrote this. Yeah. Just, I was just going to say that. That's the... yeah, don't forget, yeah, right. Matthew was one of them, right? And this is the gospel that he passes on to his church. Which is right. amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. Yeah, that's, that's a, we'll go home and ponder that one for a while, right? Prostitutes, on the other hand, right? Why are they at the bottom? Uh, come on. <laughs> right? They're clearly living a life that is outside the bounds of the covenant relationship that Jesus or God has set with his people, right? And their lives are used and expendable. Yeah, very much. They're at the bottom and you just use them up and there's something else about them. What what else is about them? Well they might have diseases, yeah. Adultery? Yeah, clearly adultery is the, the issue, the, the moral issue here. So just maybe yeah. they aren't married, but yeah. engaging. Right. Think about first century culture. What was that? They need love. Yeah, who are they? Uh, the prostitute sinners. <laughs> yeah, describe a prostitute. What is a prostitute usually? Woman. A woman. Right? And in this day and age, the fact that a woman would be going into the kingdom before a righteous Pharisee, an upright standing male, how do you think they feel about what Jesus said to them in front of everybody? Yeah, well, I mean, the, they definitely have a mindset of obviously self-righteousness. They, they feel that they are the chosen ones. Yeah. Yeah. They are, like, chosen by God. And they, yeah. then you're basically telling them, hey, the people that are at the lowest are better than you. But it's a macho thing. It's a macho thing. It's more than that. Yeah. It's that I'm a man and I am first in creation. Right. I am more important to God than the woman. Yeah, that's true. You want to say something? I have a question. Yeah. Not to get too technical, but sort of that was a segue. Yeah. Way. If, if the woman is sort of... How did the the business part of this work. Because in my understanding, <laughs> there's there's someone in charge of all those well, prostitutes. Yeah. Someone owned the house. I so organized back. I mean, there, there, yeah. were, there were brothels, there were those sorts of things, but there were... Trading yeah. favors, too. Yeah. Yeah. So was there a man in charge? Sure, sure. But that's not Jesus' point at this point. But it, there, there were, at times. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, in, in many cases, I'm sure there were. Okay, but the point here is that Jesus is saying that these bottom of the barrel women, who were a stain on the culture of Israel, right, would be going into the kingdom ahead of them. 
right? Okay, which is an interesting way to phrase what he, his point, right? Because if they go in ahead, what does that imply about them, the, the Pharisees or the Sadducees and the scribes? That they're, that they're not as good and honorable as they think. Yes, but where are they going? But they're going in, right? This leaves the door open for them to come in, right? It's just simply that they are not going to have the place of honor that they think they are, right? Now, we have to balance that against what Jesus does elsewhere in which they won't come in, right? They will be left out. I mean, there are ample places where we can go and Jesus is saying, because you didn't do the will of my Father, you're going to be on the outs, right? In fact, we're going to get into, uh, in two weeks, the story of the banquet, in which they're stuck on the outside looking in, and they don't get in, right? So I think Jesus is opening the door for the possibility that they get in. They're, you know, they're not completely shut out, and that coincides with what we know about God and Jesus and forgiveness, right? There's always a possibility of being forgiven, right? That's part of the story, right? Yes? I think in somewhat in our culture we have sanitized prostitution with Julia Roberts as an example. I think this is important to, to see. That's not prostitution. Pretty woman is not prostitution. And if you haven't seen real prostitution, you should see it up face, up close. It is ugly, it is dirty, it is vile. These are horrible situations. And if you don't weep when you see it, something's wrong in here. And that's what Jesus is talking about. That's the lowest you can go almost in this world. And if you do see prostitution as Julia Roberts, you miss the boat. It's Jesus is saying, yeah, I go to the bottom of the pool and pull you out. And you go in first. I'm sorry. I've never seen it. I mean, that, that is very true. Like, I mean... I, I usually yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah, and, and part of that whole system is you had these righteous, self-righteous males who would push them down and, and keep them there and oppress them, and they would never allow them a seat at the table. They would never open up the possibility that they could be saved. Right, um, and so to those very same men, Jesus says, "I'm sorry, but they're getting in first. Right? right? They're getting in first. Right? And then why? In 32, he says why, and it's really actually interesting why. What the reason he gives? Right? What does he actually say? What would you expect him to say before we go here? What would be the reason that they don't get to go in first, or that they're on the outs?" As Christians, we would say, you're not going to find your way in because you've rejected Jesus, right? You rejected, you'd expect him to say, because you reject me or you reject God. What does he say, though? He's talking about the, that they reject John. Yeah, he's talking about the rejection of John, right? He says, for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, right? Why is he talking about John? They saw, they saw the proof. Yeah. Hang on. Think about the context. What? Have, where have we just been? Well, he was. He's. A, it's a. That's the. I would say that's the proof that this is a continue. This is the continuous of the previous conversation. Yeah. This is all about Jesus is still going after them over their question, right? He's still trying to beat this into their brains, right? 
He's still on the he's still, you know, riding the John train here, right? Not least of which because there's a reason because he's connected to John, right? He wants everybody to understand that, right? And so John stands in for the will of God. Certainly John is doing the will of the Father. John is bringing to the people the call of God to what was he what was he preaching? Uh, repent. repent. Why? The kingdom is near. Right. So think that through. If you repent and the kingdom is near, where do you get to go? Into the kingdom. Right? So all of those people that were responding to John are the people who were first entering the kingdom. Right? And then subsequently, those who responded to Jesus, who took up John's ministry right, and amped it up. Remember, John's preparing the way for Jesus. They would likewise find their way into the kingdom. And all those who were stuck over here, sort of shaking their you know, they didn't have crosses, but whatever it was they had at Jesus or John or anyone else who would follow them, well, they're not going to get in. I mean, the others are clearly in there first, right? And remember, we have this now not but not yet thing with the kingdom, that the kingdom is, is a reality but not fully found, right? So even now today, we can say we're in the kingdom and we are in some way, but certainly not what we hope for in the future, right? Um, but of course, those who do the will of the Father. Jesus made this point over and over and over. They're the ones who find their way in, right? And to his point, right, who went out to John? They're on the third to last line at the end, but, but the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him, right? So there's the reason they're in first, because they heeded the call of God. When God said, go work in my vineyard, when God said, repent, they said, okay, Right? It, it's not, again, today's not a real complicated day in terms of understanding the parable that's being said. And then comes the really interesting point. We need to think through this for a minute. But even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. Okay? So you started to talk about this. Say more about this. So what is, what is Jesus saying to the Pharisees here? Um, there is, um, there was redemption and the Kind of open-ended, so way phrases it. There's, there's forgiveness, and, uh, a chance to make things. There's a chance for you to correct your mistakes. Yeah, yeah, there's a chance for you to correct your mistakes. Who wants to say more? Well, I was going to say pretty much the same. He, he, you know, just as he put it, he said, even after you saw it, yeah, you know, you, you still want to question it, still wants to look down on these yeah. people, but yet. They gotta make it before you because of your, your rebellion, your stubbornness, your, your, your disbelief. You know, um, they still didn't change their mind. Right. Remember, they go out to look at John the Baptist and they sort of stand off and they're going out to, again, just like with Jesus, poke holes in John, right? They're upset about him. He's outside the walls, out in the wilderness of Judea, preaching about repentance, which they don't think the people need. Well, they certainly tax collectors and prostitutes need it, but we don't need it, right? And everybody's getting excited about John, and they, they see the threat to their authority in the same way that they're seeing the threat of, to their authority that's presented by Jesus, right? And so they, they flatly reject it, right? But this comment right here is, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right, right? Even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. But this is a comment on what we talked about last week, right? Because what did he ask them? What was, what was his counter question last week? Where did the John's authority come from, right? And what do they do? 
in response to that question. Uh, I don't know. They said, I don't know, but before that, debate. they had this debate and this argument. Yeah, like, if we do this, that'll happen, and if right. we do that, that'll happen. We don't want to do either one of those. Right. And so they come out with, I don't know, they don't have a question, right? And so Jesus then, I mean, it's in response to that that he poses this question, right? And so at the end, what, what he says essentially is, you blockheads, right? He's like, why don't you change your mind? Right? He, you, you, I asked you this question about John. Like, if you were wise, you would come out and say, we change our mind. Right? What is, G- Jesus wants them to be that first son that rejected John initially, but then turns around and acknowledges who John was, what God is doing through John, and therefore through Jesus. Right? And so the, his knock on them is everything we've said, but it's particularly about their understanding of who John is, right? Because he wants them to be that's first son, right? They've already rejected. They've already said no, right? And so he's making a comment on their inability, despite their little conversation, and probably those that were arguing for an acknowledgement that it came from God, probably for a myriad of reasons, right? But at least there were some because they sat there and fought about it. Right? It says they argued about it, and it may have been a practical reason for why, you know, why we argue it, but it may have been that there were some that were actually believing that John was who John said he was, and that call was from God, and they wanted to respond to that. Right? But however that debate happened, again, we don't have the details of that argument, so it was just speculation. Right? But Jesus is telling them, look, you need to change your mind, which is another way of saying what? Repent. That's what repent means. Right? We talked about that sort of ad nauseum in this place. Like, repent doesn't mean just simply confess your sins, right? That, that is repentance because what repent means is to rethink, right? Put on a different perspective, right? And he, that's what John had said. That's what Jesus has said. Can you use that word in uh, the NIV too for that repent in there? Um, and even after, uh, where do you say? And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Yeah, so... Um, it's a different Greek word. It's a similar word, but repent, it, it doesn't carry the same meaning as the call to repent that Jesus and um, John had called for, right? So this, that's just more of a changing of your mind, right? You didn't, you didn't change your mind. But it does clearly, in the context, drive to this sort of life-altering reevaluation of who you are, what God's trying to do, the way that we've been going about doing this. Right? And so he is very publicly in front of everybody telling them, you, essentially, the meaning of this is, you fools, why won't you consider the fact that John, John's authority came from Jesus? Right? I'm sorry, from God, yes. And that Jesus' authority is of God. Right? They don't know that he's God. Right? That's, that's a reflection that happens after Jesus died and crucified and gone to heaven. Right? Right? Uh, but it's important for them to grasp and tackle with... Part, the, one of the commentators made this point. Their failure here is a result of their failure to grapple honestly with what John said in the first place. Right? They are reluctant and have been reluctant and hard-hearted from the very beginning to actually hear what John had to say. Right? They've shut them off, self off for... Uh, as we said, probably a myriad of reasons depending on which Pharisee or Sadducee or scribe you ask, right? 
authority reasons, uh, theological reasons, right? There are probably lots of reasons. I mean, he's a, he's a guy, he's a crazy guy out in the woods. We, you know, the description is that he's wearing camel's hair and eating bugs, right? He he's, doesn't come from a religious elite, right? He's not who should be uh, preparing the way for a Messiah. Jesus is not the Messiah that they would expect. We've talked about that at length, right? And so there are lots of reasons why they rejected uh, John. But, his, but, but their inability to wrestle authentically with what John was saying leads them to this place where they just can't, they're just completely closed off to it. Right? But having said all of that, back to the point we made about the father, what would the father be expected to do to that first son that said, nope, I'm not going? Punish him. Punish him. Right? You're getting a whip. <laughs> or the whatever. I don't know what the punishment was in that household. But there's no way you're getting away with that. Right? Except in the parable, at least, that doesn't happen. Jesus is making a comment on God. What does that say about God? Forgiving. forgiving, certainly, right? Because if you're that first son and you repent, right? The point of the parable is that that's the will of the Father and the Father would be pleased with that. That's the underlying assumption here. It doesn't actually spell that out, right? So forgiveness is an option, right? The, the opportunity for them to come around to the truth and to repent and to rethink is always open, Right? What else? He's using the, uh, he's using the, uh, the, the, I mean, well, the story of how, or he's using John's example almost in, within that parable, he's telling what he's doing. He's giving them a couple, he's like, he's asking them again, are you sure you don't, you know, it's kind of like, are you, are you serious? You know, you don't get it? He's yeah. Like, You're still not believing, you know? It's yeah, the, there's some of that in there too, yeah. As, as if he's, he's the, the second story is like, you, you you re- that's really what you want to say. Like, is that really your answer? Right? Given everything you've seen, right, and everything that everybody else has said and seen, like, that, that's really what, that's really, is that your final answer? Yeah, yeah there's, there's definitely some of that going on. But I think it's, it's also sad that they, that self-righteous and then so in tune with themselves yeah. where they actually seen it and seen it. And, and then here, Jesus speak about uh, the prostitutes and the taxes. They all want to be there before you, and yeah. they still right there where they at in that state of mind. Yeah. It's a sad situation. Yeah, there is. It is. It is sad, right? And I don't think. I mean, there, there's probably a, an edge to Jesus as he says this, right? Because he's tackling a, a real spiritual issue that's present in the leadership and in Israel in general. Right? It's hard-heartedness, it's unwillingness to open itself to what God is doing. Right? But there's also this, this pity and, and empathy and this love for them, even in their hard-heartedness. Right? Step out of this for one second and talk to me about what the religious elite in Judaism was thinking about God's justice at this point. If you've read the Old Testament, right, it, it has... A diff, differing, and there's a debate that's going on, but the religious authorities typically thought, what would happen to you if you, you sinned? What's God going to do? Punish you. Punish you. Yeah. There's this whole debate in the Old Testament. If you read the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, right? God is presented as this God who blesses 
righteousness, right? You, you live in accordance with the, with the covenant, and you're going to be blessed. You step out of it, he's coming down with a hammer, right? And there, there's this intertextual dialogue that goes on as the stories continue to the point where you get with Job. What's the story of Job? Or he was, I mean, righteous. He was righteous, had a lot of faith. He still had, he was still punished, I guess, in his mind. Right. Something. Right. I mean, and, and he doesn't necessarily see it as punishment, although he cries out to God, but his friends definitely do, right? If you know the story of Job, Job is a righteous man. He's, he's well off. He's got family. He's got livestock. He's got a home. He's got a business. He's a, he's a good guy. He's living according to God's life, right? He has been righteous. He has been blessed, right? And it's a, it's a myth in the sense of it's a story that, that uh, Israel's telling in order, the people of Israel are telling in order to have this open debate about what is the nature of God's justice. Because in the beginning, Satan comes to God and says, hey, the only reason that he's blessing you and he, he is faithful to you is because you've given him all this stuff, right? And so it, Satan's argument is the, the reverse, right? He loves you because you're good to him, not the other way around. It's not that he got blessings because he loved you, right? He says, let me, let me take it all from him and we'll see who, what he's really made of. And so that happens. And he loses his family, they die. He loses all of his livestock, he loses his house. He's decimated, right? And his friends, one by one, he's got three friends in the story that come and sit with him and try to get him to repent because if, he's, if all this tragedy has befallen him, clearly he's done something wrong, right? And through that whole period, he says, no, I've not done anything wrong. I love the Lord and I will continue to praise him through this, right? And in the end, he's, everything's restored. I mean, kind of, he still lost his family. He gets a new family, but let's, let's not talk about whether or not that's... <laughs> right? But that's not the point of the story, right? The point of the story is what? It's not that. Right? It's not, God is not that kind of God. At least not always. Right? And so the Bible is having, the, the, the scripture, the text, is having this debate. The people of Israel have been having this debate forever about what is the nature of God and how is he going to interact with us when we step out of line. Right? If I do good do well, do the right things, will I be blessed? If I step out of line, will I be punished, right? And there were hardliners, many of them, right? And who do you think were the hardliners at this point in stage? When he walks in the temple, who are the hardliners? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the ones that wanted to interpret the letter of the law and oppress people with it, right? And it was a stick. It was a threat, right? Don't step out of line, God's going to punish you. Right? So buried in all of this is this comment that Jesus is making also on the way that they view God to begin with. Right? And, and what is his comment? What would those Pharisees and those scribes and Sadducees expect that father to do to that son? And the first son who says, no. Punish him right then. You sinned against your father, you get punished. Right? And what Jesus says is, that's not God. Right? He will allow you to reject him. That doesn't mean there aren't consequences for your rejection. Right? That's going to play out in your life. But at least in this parable, that father's not coming down with a hard stick and making him conform. Right? Yes? Uh, there is, I'll keep this very short. I'll try. Um, <laughs> the Old Testament writer, like, writers like Moses were actually writing in response to their neighbors and their gods and their behavior, their, how they view their gods. And you see this 
back and forth. Hence the punishment, you get to the Greeks and we know Hades is where you go. Not if you're bad. Anyways, there's also the Negesis as well. Um, there, there's more about mercy. This is a conflict that keeps going on. But the mercy of God keeps coming out ahead okay. of the sin and the punishment issue over and over. And uh, they are still wrestling with this in the temple. Yeah. They, they have not won that. No, this is still a debate that's going on. You want to say something about Yes. On the subject of what you were saying, that he's sort of pleading with them to please just change their minds and get get turn things around. I, we kept a six-acre vineyard for a while, and there's two times in the year that you have to work, and one is when you prune, like in February, which is yeah. unpleasant. Uh, usually, it's cold, and you prune, and it's a big job. So you're, you're pruning all these grapes and it has to be done a certain way. And if it's done wrong, you won't really know it till the harvest. Yeah. Yeah. And so if he beat his son and, and told him he had to get out there and do it, the father knew that he could passive aggressively ruin the entire sure. vineyard and ruin the entire harvest, which is very much Interesting. Part of the same story. Yes. So if the if the if the Pharisees are beating people, they can be ruined in the, in the harvest too. And then the, the son who actually goes and does it right um, is doing it from the right spirit, and he's probably not going to ruin it. Same thing with the harvest. If you don't pick the grapes right, you either leave half of them behind and all the animals take over, or you get half of the harvest, or I mean, you know, you got things in there that shouldn't be in there that'll flavor the grapes wrong. So, like, you cannot really have people doing God's work for the wrong reasons, and you can't beat them into it. You can't bully them into it because it won't be done right. The work won't be done right. So, there are reasons for the Father's mercy in this case, and there probably are reasons for God's mercy that he coaxes us instead of scaring us to death. And I think, you know, there are lots of applications for this story that honestly I never saw till this morning. The story just has opened up for me. And I would say that you just read a lot into that story from this one, but everything she said is biblically justifiable from other places, right? That God does allow people to turn their back. God does step back and say, we've talked about this before, like in the beginning of Romans, Paul says that God's wrath is God just kind of going, okay, you can, you can do that. And that's when humanity devolves into debauchery and all sorts of things. You know, that's, what, that's Paul's comment. But he defines God's wrath as God just simply saying, all right. And the system is set up in such a way that that's the, that's the natural consequence. Right? We talked before, if God is the, the giver of life and all things good, if you reject that, you're left with death and nothing but bad. Right? That's just, it's just, it's that simple. Right? So if you reject God and you say, okay, I don't want you God, and God says, okay, well, I'll let you bug by yourself, you're going to run into consequences. Right? But Jesus' comment buried in here is that God is the God that just says, okay, you can go your own way. It's going to end badly for you, but I will let you do that. 
And Jesus' plea with them is, are you sure you want to think that? Please be the first son. Please be the one that rejected John. But in retrospect, you see what God is doing and come into the family, right? You can still do the will of the Father, right? Just pause and realize how cool this is, (laughs) right? You can do that. And and we're going to, he's going to get a little more pointed in in the parables that come, right? We're going to get into the wicked tenants and the banquet, and those are really hard. Like, he's coming out hard. But for this one, as he begins this barrage of parables against them, right, it is, are you sure that's what you want to say? Are you really just going to be so hard-hearted that you're not going to open yourself up to what John was saying and what I'm saying now, right? And as far as application and sort of the final thought for today, that question is true for us too, Right? How many of us, I mean, this is almost an obvious application, but it needs to be said. How many of us give lip service to what God wants in our life? We get lip service to the liturgy we say. We, we come in here and we say we're going to do what God wants. Perhaps we, on our knees, you know, at the, at the how many times in the movies or in stories or maybe in our lives, we see somebody bent, bent down on the side of the bed and like, dear God, if you do this for me, I'll do anything you ask or whatever. And we, we make this promise to God and whether or not it comes true or not, we, we've, we don't do that. We go our own way. We say we're going to do something for God, and then we don't, right? It's Israel's story. It's the church's story. It's our story individually, right? And what Jesus is saying to all of us is just because you rejected it yesterday doesn't mean there's grace for you and a path back to God today, right? And he would look at all of us and say, do you really want to continue down that path? Do you really just want to give lips? Because that's what these guys have done, right? They've acknowledged God. They've stepped into religious leadership. They're saying the right things most of the time, but they're not, they're not following the will of the Father. And that, that is lamentable. And that grieves Jesus and that grieves God. Right? And to the extent that we want to give lip service to God and say publicly that we, we're Christians and we follow Jesus, but we don't want to actually listen to the call in our life to do what God is asking us to do, we're in that same boat. Right? But having said that, what Jesus said at the fig tree stands true. That is the judgment upon us. Right? But there's always a path back. Right? Mount of Olives has been thrown to the sea and there's a repentance that can happen. We can turn and we can flee that back into the arms of our Creator. Right? And so the prayer of Jesus here is that they will do that. And the prayer for us today is that we would recognize the ways in which we have given lip service to God but failed to live into his call. That we would step back, that we would repent, that we would rethink, and we say, okay, I am going to go do what Dad said. Right? I'm actually going to do it today. Right? I may have mouthed off to him earlier, but I'm actually going to do it. Right? Today's communion, as I said. Dakota, you're going to come up and help me? Um, We'll just be up here. You can come up as you see fit if you want to sit and pray for a minute. Joni's going to play uh, some light music in the background. Um, you can leave it there for just a second. As we do this today, given everything we said, let us remember that we talk about the, the Mount of Olives being thrown into the seas, that there's a path back to God. It is, it is because of Jesus. Right? It's because of the teachings that we're reading about, but what he's going to do here in a couple days in Passion Week that he goes to the cross, that he defeats death. And we've talked about today. Remember, the wrath of God is simply saying, okay, 
you, you want to go your own way, go your own way. And because God is the giver of life, if we reject God, that ultimately ends in death. It has to, right? But what Jesus comes to do is to make a way that we've, we've, we've done that. We've all in our own ways done that. We've rejected. We've said, no, no thanks, no dad, I'm not going. And Jesus comes and says, well, there's still, there's still hope. There's grace. There's mercy. And I'm going to make a way. I'm going to defeat the death that is the penalty for your rejection so that you can come back around into the family, right? And what, a, what, an, honest, what, a, what an amazing gift that is. And so today, as we begin, uh, when you're ready, come. But I would encourage you to spend just a moment in prayer reflecting on the challenge of this story today. In what ways have we said yes, or maybe we've even said no, but we're not doing the will of the Father, right? And when you're ready and prepared and reflected on that question, come forward and receive the gift that reminds us and is in fact the grace of God in our lives that allows us to come back into his family, right? That reunites us, that remakes us into his image.